The word of God from the letter to the Romans, chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to this? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, will he not also give us all things with him? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Is it Christ Jesus who died? Yes, who was raised from the dead, who is at the right hand of God, who intercedes for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? May the Spirit who inspired these glorious words also open our hearts to their truths and their power. If your experience is like my own, you find the Christian life a mingling of victory and defeat. There is good and bad at once. You see progress and you see failure. And sometimes this curious mixture of going forward and moving back inclines us, does it not, to settle for mediocrity in Christian living. We may shrug our shoulders and figure that we've settled for about all there is for us, and we set the level of our Christian attitude and commitment at a certain point and go on from there. Mediocrity in the Christian life is a great tragedy. That's why the apostle under the power of the Spirit sums up the first eight chapters of Romans with this great searching question. What then shall we say to this? He's asking us to look back and see all the mercies of God that have been provided, to see how God is clearly for us, and that therefore no conceivable enemy could prevail against us. In fact, what he's saying, if we reduced it to another way, might be that from all we know about God, he is on the believer's side, and therefore no foe can thwart our glorification. Everything we know about God, Paul is saying, teaches us that God is for us, and that therefore no enemy can possibly prevail against us. This was the spirit of apostolic optimism and victory which we see in Paul and which he would communicate not only to our heads but to our hearts. Now it's very subtle how the opposition of God may be suggested to us. Our own sinful flesh may be inclined to think when difficulties arise, yes, God is really working against me in this. 
The world will be quick to suggest that the moment the believer falls into difficulty. And of course, the tempter is every ready to whisper in our ear that God is really, though he may say he's on your side, he is opposing you. Can't you see that? So we're up against some powerful suggestions to the contrary. But the great doctrine of this text, Romans 8, 31, what then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? The doctrine of the text is clear. God is on the believer's side. Doctrine, if it is separated from life, becomes dry and unprofitable and even dangerous. What God wants you to do is to take this doctrine and invite it into your life and let this doctrine of God on your side become the secret of your vigor and your activity in Christian living. Have you done that? Let's do it. Let's take this doctrine into our hearts a little at a time this morning. What about these things, which is the translation of the King James Version? What then shall we say to these things? What are the these things? Well, for here, Paul goes right back to the massive doctrinal teachings which he began at chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Here then is the first of the great these things, the righteousness of God. Every Christian needs, every person who would walk with God needs his righteousness wrapped around him. You need it. How can two walk together except they be agreed? This righteousness, which we so desperately need, is the very thing that keeps us out from God's presence. It is his holiness and his justice that will not communicate with evil and look upon iniquity. But God offers his own righteousness as a free gift for all who will embrace his son Jesus. And loving him, he bestows his own righteousness upon that believer. And so the great glorious reality which the gospel brings to us and which we celebrate and love is the reality that God has communicated his own righteousness to us, his people. Have you received the righteousness of God? Does it cloak you and cover you? Have you been saved by your character or unto a character, the very character of God? No one's saved by character. But everyone who is saved is saved unto character, that is, unto the righteousness of Almighty God. The second great reality that developed the first four chapters of Romans describe this righteousness of God and how to know it. 
Chapters 5, 6, and 7 describe another great truth. That we mortal, sinful, rebellious creatures have been given the inestimable privilege of being united to Jesus Christ by faith. That we have taken his nature upon ourselves and he ours, and we are one with him in an indissoluble union. Union with Christ. That's the great reality of the Christian's being. That we are forevermore joined to him by faith. And because we are joined to him, the Father looks upon us with the greatest of love and acceptance. And the Father conceived of as a judge takes away all the punishment that is due us because we're joined to his Son. And being joined to him, everything that pertains to Jesus Christ also pertains to us. Has Christ died to sin? Yes, so have we. Has Christ been raised to newness of life? So have we. Is Christ seated in the heavenly places? So are we seated with him. Union with Christ. His holiness is our holiness. Is Christ delivered from the claims of the law? Yes, he died to the law, and we died to its claims as being a standard of salvation and came alive to it as being our guide in Christian living. Union with Christ, that's one of the great these things. And the third is the assurance of salvation for all who know this holiness. I mean by that what we find in Romans chapter 8, the first verse. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Because we are joined to Christ, we are beyond the reach of all condemnation. And beyond its reach, we are utterly assured of glory. This is an inseparable chain. Whoever is foreknown is predestined to be conformed to Christ, and whoever is predestined is called and justified and will surely be glorified. There are no breaks in God's great purpose. And we are given right now as a guarantee the Holy Spirit. We don't live anymore according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit, and He leads us. He gives us the spirit of adoption, of sonship, in which we cry, Abba, Father. And even the sufferings we endure, which might make us think that somehow we are outside of God's plan and will, even these become signs of our salvation. They show how God is preparing us for glory and are nothing compared with that glory. And the supreme and almighty controller of everything is busily engaged in adjusting and harmonizing the events of our lives and of the world around us so that we shall not fail of the ultimate and final good, that we shall be forever with Christ, His, in His home. Oh, what mercy these things suggest. What then shall we say to this, 
to these things. If God gave us his righteousness, if he united us to Christ, and if he gave us his spirit as the guarantee of our final glory, is he going to let any conceivable power thwart all that he has done? No. The answer is no. There shall no power. Because all these things demonstrate clearly that God is on your side. If you look through scripture, you will see the psalmist saying, if God had not been on our side, we should have been helpless. The saints of God have always had this sense that God was with them, not against them, that he was mightily working in them according to his great power. Paul said, we strive with the spirit with which he mightily works in us. They've had the sense, as we do, that God surrounds them. The Lord is at my right hand, that I shall not be moved. That God formed a protective circle around his people. Even David cried, the Lord, blessed be his name, he causes my fingers to war. He knew that, that God fought for him. Gideon, with his people, sensed that the Lord would fight the battle and would give wisdom and guidance to those few to overcome the many. What does it mean when we say God is for us? Not only does he work in us and teach us and surround us, but he even orders events for our good. Why, the sun stood still for Joshua. And many times have believers found that God stood with them in the test. One believer was a guard at a federal penitentiary, unarmed and watching over a particular activity within the prison. He was suddenly confronted with two prisoners with homemade weapons. They had already killed two officers and they were coming toward this man. The man summoned all the grace and boldness of God. He said, against the wall with you, and with clear authoritative tones, he caused these men to stand against the wall and drop their weapons. Later when the hearing was held, and the question was put to the prisoners, why did you not kill this officer too? They said, there was a great white barrier between us and him. We could not touch him. Oh, God is on our side in ways we do not see. The enemy sees them. God is with us. He is for us. Now, our conviction of this does not rest upon our hunches or our feelings. We must be very clear about this. Do not listen for God to say in your ear, I'm on your side in some mystical way. He has said it clearly in his word. 
He has given the basis of truth so that every believer may know always that since God has done such merciful and gracious things, since his purpose cannot fail, God will remain with his people to the very end, based on the word of God. If you rely on your feelings or on your hunches, you will go wrong because the day will come you will say to yourself, God is against me. If you continue on the basis of Scripture, you will always be assured. Sometimes it will seem that God is opposed to you, for events will be mysterious. How could Joseph ever have thought that God was working for him when he was strapped to a camel and being sold into slavery? In prison, here he was far from home, from anyone who could help. Where is God now? But he said, God meant it for good. Job had no idea what was happening behind the scenes in heaven, but he still said, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And David kept on singing in the midst of being hunted and rebelled against. He said, the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? A.W. Pink was a great preacher in the earlier part of this century. Everywhere he went, people heard him gladly. And he spoke with great power. Then Pink's message gradually changed. New and deeper insight into Scripture forced him to preach of the holiness of the believing life. He called the church to repentance in a way that no one else was doing. The invitations stopped coming. Soon there was no place for Pink to preach. Isolated and alone, he said, God has something else. He took that quiet and privacy, and he began to write. Today, we would not have his sermons had he been preaching, but we have his studies in Scripture, the sovereignty of God, and all the great things that flowed from his pen. He could have been resentful and bitter when events turned against him and doors to every pulpit in the land closed upon him, but Pink went forward, God is for me. He is on my side. He is doing something I don't understand, but I know this. He's with me. He has not let me go. Now, friend, do you feel this? Maybe you know it in your mind, and that's where it begins. But I want you to know it in your heart. God is not only a God of us, but he's a God to us. That is, these prepositions are important. He's not only a God over us, but he's a God for us. He is there cheering, strengthening, encouraging, 
in every worthwhile and righteous pursuit of your life. He stands with you against the forces of evil. He encourages and blesses you in all of those things in which his spirit is mightily inspiring you. You are not alone. Are you praying for your family in great need? God does not desert you in that. He is for you. How do you get this into your heart? Well, one way is to take the passages of the Word of God that speak of His interest and support in what you're doing and meditate upon them. Turn, for example, to Isaiah chapter 43. Suppose you were to read in your own room in a moment of doubt or uncertainty. Let's read softly these first two verses. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. Let the word of God that way begin to warm your heart and work its way into your being so that you not only know doctrine with the mind, but feel it in your experience and sense God with you in the conflicts and difficulties and oppositions which you feel. You could do similarly with Isaiah chapter 41, verses 11 to 13. No power shall contend against you. Now this is not to say that there are no opposing forces in the believing life, for there are, and you know it. It says, if God is for us, who is against us? This is not to say uncertainly, is God for us? But to say very certainly, since God is for us, no power can prevail against us. God certainly is on our side. We have seen that in the these things of Romans 8. But no power can thwart it. Satan is one of the great powers that stands against the believer. He is relentless and hateful. He is insidious and uncanny in his knowledge. His purpose is to drag the Christian into sin, to ruin his effectiveness, and if possible, to take away his physical life. Satan aims his attacks at the Word of God. He brings frontal attacks against the people of God. He raises up counterfeits to make the gospel itself seem to be less lustrous. 
Satan's great tactic today is to raise up large humanitarian organizations for world peace and social betterment which leave out the centrality of the Lord Jesus Christ. He loves to take over business and industry and education and religion to take over the respectable fields of human endeavor in such a way that Christ himself is removed from these. These are his tactics. And he is a subtle and powerful foe. We will not overcome him by underestimating him. Let us estimate him at his full force. But having said everything that we can say about the power of Satan as the foe of the believer. We have to say that though Satan opposes us, Satan is also in the palm of God's hand. And God has said that he is so engaged and involved in our victory that whatever is our enemy is God's enemy. And if Satan stands against us, God says, I have him chained. And if the world stands over against us, Jesus says, I have overcome the world. And if principalities and powers should threaten to assault us, God says, I have disarmed them. Oh, glorious victory. The weapons, the opposition, the foes are there. But God stands with us against them. And they are no match for him. That's why we can say, who is against us? That is, who has power comparable to our God? Not a one of these. Not Satan, not the world, not principalities and powers. None of these. In all of them. God is on our side. Now you see, Satan would defeat you. He'd get you to thinking that he is more powerful. Or the world wants you to think that it is stronger than God. If God is for us, who is against us? Do you see then the set of the Christian mind in this hour? It is this, we shall have confidence in our endeavors in Christ. If God has this much hope in us, can we not hope in ourselves in him? Can we not go out in our Christian activity without anticipating defeat, but expecting God to bless? and with an overcoming and overpowering spirit, do the work of the Lord. We have too long been Lilliputian, thinking that the work of Christ would shrivel and shrink until at last it was nothing. But the vision of God is that the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as the waters cover the sea and that the kingdoms of our world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. If God be for us, who can be against us? So the Christian is busy and optimistic in his evangelism. 
He goes out seeing every person as a potential child of God. And no one is set aside as an unlikely candidate for the kingdom of heaven. We do not think in terms of defeat, but of great and ultimate triumph for God. In fact, we seek to take over the segments of human life. You that are in education, I call on you. Do not surrender that field to the devil. Take it over in Christ's name. Let the Prince of Knowledge, Christ himself, integrate learning. You that are in government, plant the name of Christ there in your office. You that are in business, let the righteousness and the holiness of God be established in your place until Christian people in this land have begun to set up the banners of God in every segment of society. Why should we let Satan hold the field as he would like? It is ours in the name of Christ and with his assistance and with him at the center to find ways to lift the whole level of life in our land. Where vice prevails, let us in Christ's name remove it. Where corruption is, let us clean it. Let Christ's cleansing power make a new nation because Christians have stopped being defeated and have begun to realize that God is on their side. Why can we not defy with boldness every power of evil that stands against us? We must do so. The resources are ours. The word of God is in our hand. The Holy Spirit, the very spirit of the creator is in our bosom. We must go forward. Friends, the converse is also true. If God is against you, who can be for you? That is, even though you may seem to have temporary benefits, and God is not smiling on you as a child of his purpose, they will not last. And in the last and ultimate matter, you shall be lost. The whole thing now is to be sure that we are within the purpose of God, that his righteous and grand purpose are formed in us, that our calling and election is sure, that we are not simply saying that because I signed a card back there or because I walked up an aisle, I am therefore in Christ forever, no matter what I do, not that, but saying that because the evidences of holiness are in my life and the purpose of God is being worked out in me, God will cause me to persevere. That's what Christianity is all about. It's singing with joy. If God is for us, who can be against us? Is your Christianity like that? If it isn't, it should be. And if it should be, it can be. And if it can be, it must be. Nothing less will pass muster in the company of Paul and David and James and John. Nothing but the shout 
of the Christian's victory. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Let us pray together. Oh, blessed God, on the basis of your word, we've come to see how deeply committed you are to our ultimate arrival in glory. You've used every resource, every power to assure us you've even ordered the events of the world that your people will at last arrive with you in heaven. Lord, what joy and boldness we have of this. What grace and confidence we find in it. O oh Lord, deliver us from a timid spirit, from a defeatist outlook. Grant us grace now, Lord, to publish your name to all men, to move out with courage and vigor, to be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, to defeat every foe that would enter our homes, our businesses, our offices, our personal hearts and lives. Make us more than conquerors through him that loved us. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.